0: What do you do on Sundays?
1: We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all.
0: Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle.
1: This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. And this week, we continue recapping and reviewing her first foray into TV with Mrs. America. And in this episode, we will discuss episodes four and five of the Hulu series. And my guest today is staff writer at Backstage, Casey Mink. Hi, Casey.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: You're welcome. I'm excited to have you to talk about Mrs. America, just talking to you on social media. I think you're excited about this show.
2: Yeah, I mean, as anyone who follows me on Twitter, first of all, I'm sorry if you do. um, But you know, I am obsessed with this show and I have not stopped tweeting about it for the last three, four weeks, however long it's been on. So yeah, safe to say I am a fan. I'm very excited to get into it.
1: I am too. And I think these two episodes that we're discussing today is to me where the show hit its stride. So yes. the first three episodes were more of a setup, especially for Phyllis, the character played by Kate. And this this week, I think it hit its stride and it gave us a lot of drama.
2: Yeah, I was just gonna say though, the most recent episode five was probably my favorite of the season so far.
1: Yeah, I would agree. But let's discuss episode four first. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know. Getting ahead of myself, per usual.
1: So, episode four is called Betty, and it's about the mother of the feminist movement, Bray Free Dan, played by Tracy Allman. And that episode gives us, the show is doing these parallels between Phyllis and the women of the feminist movement. So in every episode, there is a sort of a parallel between what's happening to her and what's happening in the feminist movement. And the parallel in the Betty episode was the relationship between both Betty and Phyllis and their daughters. And then we get, of course, Betty against the advice of Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem and all the women in the feminist movement decides to yep. debate Phyllis Schlafly and then we see the debate which is a great I think it was a long scene maybe it was 10 15 minutes a great yeah. scene for mm-hmm. both um, actresses so general impression what were your thoughts about the Betty episode Casey
2: well first of all I mean this is going to come up every single time we talk about any character on on the series but Every actor is so incredible. I mean, Tracy Ullman, just unbelievable. But what you're talking about, I think the framing of the show, whereas where as you said, every episode sort of is a parallel between Phyllis and another one of the women, is so smart because it really sort of dimensionalizes all of the characters, and of course, you know, Phyllis chief among them. Yeah, um, yeah. and I think as you said, again, the sort of climax of the episode was this debate with Betty. And it was so well executed. I mean, sometimes these sort that sort of thing on television can fall really flat, a sort of debate in that way. But I was so gripped. And the tension that they were able to establish felt so authentic. And you could really see how Phyllis and her just withholding drove Betty to, to snap, essentially, at the end.
0: You see, this is the false lure of the women's liberation movement, happiness. Because the fact is, girls, the ERA will not solve your personal problems. It will not hand you a happy home life. It won't give you a a Sunday kind of love as the uh, popular song goes and it certainly will not uh, keep your husband from being jealous or petty or dumping you in your middle age for a new younger model after you have uh, devoted yourself to keeping his home for 20 or 30 years because you simply cannot legislate universal sympathy for the middle-aged woman. You are correct on one count. I do leave my home on a Vacation, and I travel all over the country and I meet women from all walks of life. And you, Miss Ferdinand, are the unhappiest woman I have ever met. And you are a witch! God, I'd like to burn you at the stake! <laughs>
1: yeah, I agree with you that the writing is very smart. So to get us to that moment where Betty snaps at Phyllis, they populated the show before that moment with all these signs. So I think the first sign of that was the prep scene between Kate and Joan Slattery playing Fred Schlafly so they're doing this prep and one of the Achilles heels of Phyllis as presented in the show is that about her about the fact that her father wasn't a provider and her mother was forced to work to provide for the family and her husband uses that to get to get to get her to get emotional and saying to her you just lost the debate because you got emotional because she refuses to acknowledge that um, and she's like well Betty wouldn't know this and And Kate plays it so well, all in the face and in the tightness of the body, like she moves her, she shrinks her shoulders in and she knew, you know, that looking at this, that this is something that really gets to Phyllis. And but that also puts the light in Phyllis is that, oh, I got to get Betty to get emotional.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I just think what you're touching on, which is what I'm so far just so impressed with. Kate with this show is that everything she's doing and she is doing so much is being done with so few words, whether she is succeeding, whether she feels like she is failing, whether she is being manipulated, whether she is working things to her advantage, whether she doesn't really know what's what she is doing, whether she's out of her depth, she is doing almost all of it without saying as such. And it is just remarkable and i mean we'll talk about the next episode of course but contrasting that episode with this one that we're talking about right now i mean it's almost sort of polar opposite experiences that she has and she does them both just with that that tight-lipped sort of thing it's Mm -hmm. it's remarkable
1: yeah i mean long time listeners of this podcast would know, I always talk about Kate being a full body actor, is that she acts with her body. And actually, this week, I listened to an interview that she did um, with Yale students on Zoom, where she talked about how she learned to use her hand, to use... Um, her frame to use basically all of her body because she was strained as a theater actor. And she's like, when when I moved to, to movies, what I took with me is that because in theater, you're so far away from the audience that they can't see your face. I learned to act with my body. And it completely shows in this show. One other moment that I really loved is when they brought the Joan Birch Society and one of mm-hmm. the women who works with her said, oh, well, I'm a member of the John Birch Society. And there was also another tight sort of movement with her body while she's like, ooh, you know, right. let's just bury this.
2: <laughs> right, right, right. She is just doing amazing work with so few words and yeah I mean I'm not surprised to hear that she does rely on her theater training on camera I mean at backstage I write so much about actors and sort of the differences in their training and and mediums and I really think that yeah learning to do more with your body is I mean we see it in some of the best performers that we have Working on camera, it's so
1: crucial. And let's go back to Tracy Oldman, because I found her performance to be so moving. First of all, I think the writing was beautiful in this episode. Mm -hmm. Really um, and let's credit the writer. Then it was because they're never credited. Boo Kilbrew, who wrote the episode of Betty, because portraying Betty Friedan, people just know her as this mother of the movement, as the writer of the Feminine Mystique. But this, in this episode, we see her as somebody whose heart is broken because she longs to be in a relationship with someone she goes out on this date. And then Tracy's face is so beautifully when later on somebody asks her about the date and she's like, oh, he never called back. But it's because I because I wasn't interested either. And it's so beautiful to sort of see that on her face.
2: Totally. And I mean, not, just she's not just you know credited as like the mother of the movement that yeah I mean she is sort of regarded as you know the founder of first wave feminism but she also takes a lot of well-deserved heat for you know she wasn't super inclusive and it wasn't super intersectional feminism and you know we've come a long way and I think that that sort of complexity is also really really beautifully relayed in Tracy Ullman's performance. I mean, she, she sees her own sort of relevance diminishing, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's Gloria is much more flashy and likable than she is. And yeah, it's like just the subtle disappointment that Tracy is able to exude in that performance while still being such a strong, character a strong and honestly hard-headed character but she does just you can see the vulnerability think about her being on the date with that man and she's having such a nice time and you know she's having such a nice time which is what makes it so aching when she you know you find out later in the episode that he never called and she has to just sort of put on the strong face and go forward because i mean that is i guess her whole ideology and even the feminist movement yeah yeah, beautiful performance from Tracy Ullman.
1: Yes, and Tracy is a comedian, and we forget that. And I remember that, and I loved it when in that scene with all the women, I think there is was a, at a barbecue where she uses a rib, she's eating ribs, and she uses this yeah. piece of rib to just show us how Betty wants to be in the conversation, but she doesn't, also wants to show how needy she is to the other women. And I'm like, oh... This is how a comedian would take this role. And I totally, even though it's, it's not a comedic moment, but I could see that this is why she, she used that prop. And it was also very funny, but also very poignant. I loved her performance. Exactly. She was great.
2: Exactly. I mean, the, in t- all of the casting on this show, some of the actors are not necessarily the first person you would think to play that person. But it's so right. And it's so interesting like, yeah, I think that having someone with a, a background in comedy play this role was was a really innovative and exciting idea.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Tracy Ullman doesn't really look like Betty Friedan, but, you know, obviously they gave her the hair and everything. And Uzo Aduba also doesn't look so much like Charlie Chisholm, while, for instance, Rose Byrne looks a lot like Gloria Steinem. But... I think all the actresses are so great because they brought the soul of these characters, even if sometimes they don't look like them.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> Rose Byrne looks so much like Gloria Steinem. It is very scary.
1: <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that, you know, we saw Betty um, he was... Uh, her husband's new wife and sort of the the new wife tries to embrace her. And that is also another pointed moment for Tracy to play into like, you know, she was angry at that woman, but then the woman diffuses her and just the change on her face is, it was so beautiful to behold.
2: I can't be mad. I can't hate this woman because she's so lovely.
1: Yeah. And then, I was really moved. I think the show is really also very good at the endings of every episode, and this episode okay. ends, you know, Miriam Shore appears as a friend of Betty's and a neighbor, and she's the one who sort of tells Gloria, well, have you the Betty? Because she started this all. We get to do what well, we get to do because of the past that she forged, and so... Gloria does take that advice and calls Betty at the end after basically Betty lost the debate because she got emotional and and lost the debate to Phyllis and she doesn't want to talk to anyone and Gloria calls her and instead of talking to her about the debate she just thanks her and then you know the song starts and the song is what the world needs now and I was like you know um, I had tears in my eyes because it was such a beautiful moment.
2: I know. The funny thing is that day <laughs> I had spent a lot of time revisiting the, remember it, the, at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, there was that big performance of all of the Broadway community, like Adina Menzel and Audra McDonald and mm-hmm. that's what, they all went to the DNC and they sang What the World Needs Now is Love. And I spent all day just rewatching that crazy performance. And then the episode ended with that song and I lost my mind, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, it was really important for the episode to establish that Betty had, I mean, for, you know, lack of better term, she was past her prime and her, a lot of her contributions were sort of, I mean, they, they were bygone and -hmm. there was. Another really poignant moment where she is looking for a dress to wear to the debate, and she pulls one out of her closet, and you have that flashback to when when the Feminine Mystique had just come out, and she was on a talk show, and she was killing it on the talk show. And then that, in contrast with, as you said, she lost the debate, it was just really, really... I mean, painful. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She lost it in a way that was obviously true to life, but also just it breaks your heart because she's obviously the smarter person. She's obviously the more prepared. She's obviously the person who should win this debate in a walk because Phyllis is not smart. Phyllis doesn't know what she's talking about. She just keeps making things up and blowing smoke and trying to defuse everything. But somehow Do she wins.
2: Do you think she's not smart like I think that she's not soup I mean, she, clearly she's she's not fact-based. I mean mm-hmm. she's making things up. I mean, she's definitely really savvy. She's incredibly savvy. And I mean, I don't I don't know that maybe I'm just so taken by Kate's portrayal of her. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that she isn't smart. I think that she's not, you know, an altruistic person in any way. I think she's basically evil.
1: Yeah, I think she's more of a manipulator than actually an intelligent person. Like she knows how to read situations and manipulate them to her advantage, which makes her savvy. But I don't think she's somebody who like can actually debate someone on facts or on, you know, intellect.
2: What you're saying is a perfect sort of segue to the following episode in which we see another debate. And it's exactly what you're saying in the face of actual sort of ironclad facts and as someone who knows how to debate with their head and not their heart, mm-hmm. somebody, Phyllis is, you know, she doesn't have a leg to stand on. She absolutely wilts in the face of, of fact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to the next episode. So the next episode is Phyllis and Fred and Brenda and Mark. And it the title is a homage to the 1969 film Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice
2: recently seen off broadway actually they turned that into a musical oh yeah that's right
1: i missed it i didn't see it
2: yeah same <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the actual the movie ends with what the world needs now so if you're watching these two episodes together That song ends Betty. It didn't ends Bob and Carol. But it is about we're introduced to Brenda Fagan Fasto. I love that name. She has appeared in previously played by Irie Grainer in a couple of the first episodes. But this is where her character sort of comes to the center. And she is an ACLU lawyer and was one of founders of Miss. She's married to this guy Mark played by Adam Brody. They the the feminist movement at that point has realized that you know Phyllis Schlafly is not going away, and she keeps winning, and they need to stop her. So Gloria and um, Brenda fagan Faso go to meet with this lobbyist played by Jack Lacey in Washington. He's in the Nixon administration and um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes a cameo in that scene. And he basically says somebody needs to debate her. Gloria doesn't want to debate her. Betty has already failed. So Brenda volunteers to debate her. And then Phyllis's husband sort of guides Phyllis to to bring him along for the debate. So it becomes two married couples versus two married couples, because Phyllis feels a little bit, a little intimidated by Brenda Fasto's credentials.
2: Well, and as it turns out, she had every uh, right idea to be intimidated by her. I mean, as we said at the top of the episode, I loved, I mean, this was my favorite episode of, of the series to date. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, Ari Grainer, what a, powerhouse we've known we've definitely known but she was just oh my god I was so affected by her performance and just the layers and the depth and the nuance but I mean yeah she she came in with just facts an agenda and when she called Phyllis on her bluff Phyllis could not even come up with any sort of viable excuse and she was humiliated and the scene when they finish the debate and the two couples are walking in first you see uh you know Phyllis just grimacing and she is in like agony because she's been so badly defeated and then you see uh Brenda just kind of give that little smirk and it was such a perfect contrast to you know the episode that we just talked about where mm-hmm. she where Phyllis had done so well in the debate and she was so satisfied and then just on a dime She was in the other person's shoes and on the other side of the table, having just been badly defeated. In the real world, in a court of law, you need to cite a case to support your arguments to cite the case.
0: Well, I think it was Foley versus Langham or Lancaster, something like that. No, there is no such case. Oh yes, there is. But you see, did you just I, make up? A I'm case? not a lawyer. No, I'm the wife of a lawyer, and I really do think that's more fun. Well, and listen, I, I doubt we're going to get to so no on. On. fact agreement. I there is no Foley versus Langham case. Also, a
2: fact is that you are not really a housewife. You are a full time lobbyist working to defeat the ERA so that businessmen can continue to make millions of <laughs> oh, dollars discriminating no, no, against women no. <laughs> when they work, when they buy insurance, and when they give birth.
0: No, well I don't work for anyone.
2: Oh great. So for the you're majority. A party. Well maybe you should stick to baking and leave interpreting the law to the lawyers.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Ari Grainer too. I agree with you and I agree with all what you were just saying. Um I love the whole episode because it does it's not just the debate. So Ari shows his Brenda sort of falling in love. Um, She's married to a man, but she meets this woman in DC, um, a photographer who worked at Miss in the past, and they have a one night stand that becomes um, sort of a relationship and then they they meet again with other people in uh, in the movement like Margaret Sloan, who we've seen before. just are sort of charting that, the falling in love and also sort of the ambition of this woman and her relationship with her husband. It's such a great showcase for her talent, this episode. It's amazing. Yep.
2: And as you pointed out, you know, every episode is parallels one of the women and Phyllis. And this one, it was almost sort of dually paralleled in that yes it was about Brenda and her husband and Phyllis and her husband but that's kind of every episode I think that the the second tiered parallel was also this um, element of homosexuality which mm-hmm. which was I mean I didn't even again just speaking to what Kate says without saying anything so basically we find out that one of Phyllis's sons, uh, is is gay and at the end of the episode you have this unbelievable scene with Kate talking to her son not about explicitly about the fact that she knows he's gay but about how she managed to quit smoking cigarettes the day that she married her husband and how it's you know all about restraint which i mean <laughs> obviously and oh, <laughs> It's just, it was just so, and I didn't even really understand, because the way that we find out that he is gay is because a man drops off her son's wallet at the house. Mm -hmm. I didn't entirely get it, to be quite honest. I'm a little bit dense sometimes. I only, it only came into very clear focus with that scene at the end. And it was just, I mean, it was, you know, just Kate does best. I mean, the
1: show has given us um a sign before in the previous episode where he was playing the piano in a church where Sarah Paulson's son is getting married. And the way he was looking at Sarah Paulson's son, the groom in that scene, completely to me was like, oh, okay, I know what you're feeling. And then Kate also sees it or Phyllis also sees it. And I think that's when she realizes that, oh, something's right. happening here with my son, John. And then it's confirmed to her when that <laughs> handsome man brings... Um, his wallet. I did love that scene. And it was, I think, my favorite Kate moment. And not yeah. to get too personal and maudlin in this, it reminded me of a scene from my own sort of life when I was a teenager. My mom is not Phyllis Schlafly. She's not a conservative, not anything like that at all. But I remember when I was 15, 16, we had that conversation of was like, I know you're gay, but I don't want to say it. And she used the same word that Kate as Phyllis uses here, which... Is when she said, be more careful. And I, yeah. my mother said that to me. So that scene really rang true. And but, I loved it.
2: And the thing is about Phyllis is, I mean, as we've both sort of said, whether or not she's, you know, a particularly smart person, she is definitely very strategic. Mm-hmm. You don't even know if she is really caring about the fact that he is gay or if it's just that it would reflect so poorly for her movement and what she's trying to do and it, that's just not going to work for her strategy
1: yeah she always have ulterior motives with whatever it is she's doing right because she's such an opportunist like she doesn't care about DRA, whether it's ratified or not she just wants the power
2: exactly right at the end of the day she does know what this amendment does and does not do and everything that she is spewing about it is false as evidenced by the fact that she completely made up a Supreme Court case, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you know, as evidence and was called, and then her bluff was called. I mean, it, the ERA would not do anything harmful for her, and she knows that. But it's, as you said, a power grab.
1: Yeah. The other thing is, if we're staying on, like you said, this, these two episodes have a lot of gay characters and gay subplots, and to quote Betty Friedan. They could have both been titled The Lavender Menace. So we had Brenda, we have John Schlafly, and also Margaret Sloan, who is played by Bria Simone Henderson. And she is um, a Black activist, at Miss, who works at Miss Magazine. And so in the previous episode, she had that wonderful scene about tokenism in the workplace.
2: Just so good. So good. Keep going.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a great scene. And that scene is is where the show is trying to sort of tackle the race question. And it works really well in 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 the episode. But I just hope that they follow through on that. So Margaret is also a lesbian. And in this episode, in the fifth episode, she's seen leaving um, New York to go to Oakland, she says, because the schools are better there for her daughter. But you can see in the performance and in again, in the subtle ways, like what I love about the writing of this show is that it doesn't tell you everything. You need to figure out things on your own. Like I just saw that in the performance, like you know, she talks about tokenism, and then the next episode she leaves, and you can tell. You know, this is somebody who's maybe being stifled at Miss Magazine because Gloria Steinem is not giving her the opportunities that she thinks she deserves, and she wants to go forge another another world for her in in Auckland, and it's so beautifully played by Henderson.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it's exactly what you're what you're saying. It's like you really have to be sort of paying attention to catch every contextual clue that the show is giving you. But yeah, it's like the episode where she, you know, said she wants to write about tokenism and she's sitting in a room full of white women. And then, you know, one of them says to her, you don't feel that way though. Right. (laughs) And She has to be like, no, of course, of course not. And then it's just like, she's really just asking to, for recognition Mm -hmm. and, and receiving it. And I think that this, I mean, I, obviously have not seen every, you know, fictionalization of this, of this time period. But I feel like this is one of the first major uh, depictions to tackle the fact that this form of feminism was not super intersectional and inclusive, and was really (laughs) white feminism. Mm -hmm. I mean, Gloria Steinem, beautiful Gloria Steinem was the face of it. And, yeah, to say that black women and women of color were left out of the conversation would be, you know, an understatement. And I'm really glad that the show is in some way, uh, you know, giving that some attention. And as you said, I hope that it that it stays with with it. I hope that it doesn't just drop it.
1: I hope so, too. I mean, we have gotten the titles of the episode and there is no Margaret Sloan episode. There's no Flo Kennedy episode. So I hope they they remain within the context, even if they don't get their own sort of episode.
2: Yeah, because it's really it's really important. And then when she does ultimately quit Ms. in this episode and, you know, she walks out and then Gloria goes to meet her boyfriend who is black and she says, oh, Margaret just quit. Because she's moving to Oakland. There are better schools there. And he says, is that what she told you? Is that what she said? Yeah.
1: And he knows. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Of course he knows. And Gloria knows too. And it's, you know, frustrating to see the person not recognize that because she's smart. But I also think that that's authentic to the period and the time like i don't think that's the right (laughs) is neglecting that i think that that is is pretty sort of fact-based evidenced by you know history that yeah black women were sort of tokenism of that time
1: yeah the show in episode four was betty and then in episode five, it shows us the factions, the, yeah. between the women's movement. So, uh, the black women led by Flo Kennedy have sort of splintered off and they choose Charlie Chisholm to be their speaker in, in an organization that they're setting up. But even within that, in that scene, Sundays at Flo, where Nisi Nash sort of holds court as Flo, you see that some of the women sort of don't accept Margaret Sloan, who is an out lesbian. So there are fractions there exactly. and they're
2: exactly. exactly.
1: And also the the Gloria Bella faction also has fractions because they don't like Betty. They also, um, Bella sort of, it's implied, and there is an episode about Bella, so we'll see more of Margot Martindale. It's implied she's the one who sort of brings up the lavender menace. And right. So I'm like, hmm. So there is a little bit of non-acceptance from both factions for the LGBTQ women of the movement.
2: For sure. And I think that that's, and it's still, unfortunately something that the feminist movement is grappling with today I mean as and it's also been expanded to because fortunately this wasn't just this wasn't even a thing at the time but you know now to trans women and you know non-binary folks and gender non-conforming gender fluid and we're still working to make feminism a place for all women and women identifying people and we're nowhere near that still
1: I just love the scene. The Sundays at Flo, Nisi Nash taking center court. I love Nisi Nash. She's so funny. She's so warm as Flo Kennedy. And I was really hoping one of the episodes will be about Flo Kennedy. So but I hope we see more of Nisi Nash in the future. I-
2: I love that Nisi Nash just works so much. Like you just see her pop up on, you know, four or five shows a year. And it's always such a pleasure to watch her on
1: screen. Also a pleasure to watch Uzo Aduba as Shirley Chisholm, who in episode four with Betty, it's sh- it's shown as that they're investigating her campaign after she lost her bid for president and the toll that that's taking on Shirley. And again, like we talked about how with this show, it doesn't tell us everything. And this is all just... The look on Uzu Aduba's face. She's tired. She's exhausted. And it tells you everything you need to know. And it, of course, made me go to Wikipedia to look what happened to Shirley post 1972.
2: I know. That's the thing. It's like people never talk about her today. It's so sad.
1: Yeah. The other thing on the race front with the, sh- with the show is that in this episode, that we talked about the parallels, and there is a parallel between Phyllis and Fred and Mark and Brenda, but also the third marriage that comes into focus in this episode is the relationship between Gloria and her boyfriend, Franklin, played by Jay Ellis. And so they are shown in several scenes hanging with Brenda and Mark. So they are definitely do that sort of like couples hanging together thing. So everybody knows that they are a couple. Yet the show never comments on the fact that he's Black. Like, no character brings it up. Gloria and him don't bring it up. Like, Gloria is the face of the movement. Having a Black boyfriend, I think, in 1974 would be something that might be used against her or by other people who are progressive might be used as something to show how progressive they are. But it's never commented on.
2: I know, and I really... Because obviously that has struck me as well. And I really wonder if that is a decision made by... The show to try and depict. Stay with me here. To try and depict. Obviously, Gloria Steinem was and is a radical to an extent, but I really wonder if that is the show trying to depict Gloria's posturing as radical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To not bring it up, because, yeah, obviously, today interracial couples are still a thing. Very much so. We have not moved that far. And yeah, in not ever addressing it, I really do think that it is trying to make a statement that Gloria was above commenting on it in the same way that she's above. It's like saying, you know, like, oh, I don't see race. Of course you do. Yeah, yeah. You don't see it is actually just is privilege.
1: Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, but I think somebody would comment on it. So we'll see. I mean, this we're only five episodes in. So because Jay Ellis seems to be part of the fabric of the show, like he's appeared in several
2: episodes so yeah, far. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of that couple, then we see her at the end of this episode having cheated on him. Yes.
1: So again, a parallel, you know, Brenda sleeps with Jules and she sleeps with the Republican lobbyist. Right. <laughs> Gloria have- does.
2: Be fair, Jack Lacey is is very cute.
1: Even if he is a Republican from Toledo,
2: <laughs> right? See, okay, and I actually think I'm I'm working this out as we go, but I actually think that that supports my thesis statement, which is that Gloria does posture quite a mm-hmm. bit.
1: Yes. And, I, and I'm and i sure, like, Gloria has written her autobiography. There's so much writing about her. So if there is one character the show cannot invent something for, it's Gloria Steinem. Because there's just so much writing about her, from her and from other people.
2: Exactly. And I also think that that's what makes Rose Byrne's job probably the hardest of these women. Because, I mean, no one even... Even Phyllis, who's probably the second most well-known, would you say? Like, she, most people wouldn't be able to pick her out today. I mean, everyone knows what Gloria Steinem looked like. Yeah,
1: she's great. I mean, Rose Byrne is great. I was not sure about the voice at the beginning, but then I just realized it's spot on Gloria Steinem.
2: know. I know that weird sort of little like raspy, exhausted, <laughs> exacerbated voice. Uh, I love this show. A majority of people in this country support every woman's right to control her own body.
1: Is there anything else about episode five that we didn't talk about?
2: I think that it was kind of everyone's best episode so far, including Phyllis slash Kate. I mean, I think that the range of what she had to do in this episode was just incredible. And we don't get to see her vulnerable that much in the show, or at least, you know, outwardly vulnerable. But then after she loses the debate and she's arguing with, you know, her husband. She said, you let me die out there. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of one of the first times where she was really floundering and yeah, it was impressive. I mean, obviously that's not going to remain the case, but it was, I'm glad to have seen that side of her, but she's, cause it wouldn't be interesting if she just had a straight shot towards you know stopping this thing it's like there is ebbing and flowing happening Mm -hmm. on both sides of of the movements
1: yeah i mean the ending of this episode is also again endings in this show are so strong so phyllis loses the debate like there's no argument brenda has won this debate phyllis loses but the scene the last scene is Brenda and Gloria talking about how it was not right the ERA was not ratified in Illinois so they lost in Illinois and they did this debate to win Illinois so they lost it and they're talking about we'll win next year so Phyllis despite losing has won
2: exactly and that's why the show is just broadly so resonant today because at the end of the day nothing matters facts don't, don't matter i mean Brenda very clearly <laughs> Called Phyllis's bluff and said that's that didn't happen. What are you even talking about? It's completely not true, and it had no effect on the final outcome.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this is a Kate Blanchet podcast. So I want to talk a little bit about. Kate's gestural acting in in this episode. So there are so many moments. We talked about how she acts with her body, but one of the things that I love about Kate is that she is always, she uses gestures so well. And two that really jumped out at me and I had to like rewind several times is that first of all, when she was preparing for the debate against Brenda, she smoothes her lipstick off her teeth with <laughs> her finger In a moment that is a little bit psychotic from her.
2: But it was so, who knows, but it felt so authentic to that character and that Mm -hmm. moment.
1: Yeah, totally.
2: It was just, it was something that she could control and she was going to goddamn control it, you know? (laughs)
1: She did. And then later on, after um, she has an argument with her husband, like you said earlier, why did you leave me out to dry? She slaps herself.
2: That was insane. That was insane. Okay, actually, we need to talk about that. I kind of I kind of forgot about that. We need to talk about that. That was unbelievable. Do you think that she did that in the moment? Was she directed to do that? I need to know about that choice.
1: I mean, I don't know, but as someone who follows Kate, I think that's what's probably her choice. But the writing, again, in this show is so sharp and smart that maybe it was in the screenplay. Kate has the psychological profile of Phyllis, and it could have just probably something that I think happened in the moment. Just, you know, she probably spent months diving into this woman, and she felt that that's probably what Phyllis would have done in that moment. What do you think?
2: Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, right, it wasn't just you know, a, a crazy choice that she wanted to do to be eccentric. Like, that was definitely based on everything she knows about the character. But it was wild.
1: It was. But this is what I love about Kate as an actor, is that she always gives the fans something. So I think this moment was for her fans, because it's going to be gifted forever.
2: I know. I can't. I mean, it. yeah, it probably already is. The episode's been out for, what, 48 hours? That is exactly what you're talking about. It's like, it's still television at the end of the day. Like, Mm -hmm. give us something, a little salaciousness every now and again, never killed anyone. Like, this show is depicting things that really happened that are so crucial and remain relevant today. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's TV. And I want to (laughs) see Phyllis Schlafly slap herself a little bit. Yes,
1: we do (laughs) want to see her because... There is a yin and yang because that scene with her son was so moving personally to me and and I was moved by Phyllis and her son and then I'm like why am I feeling tender feelings for Phyllis Schlafly? Damn you Kate Blanchett. But so I am happy to, to see that scene where she sort of slaps herself and that sort of brings you back, oh yeah, this is somebody we do not need to like.
2: Right. But you know what? I think that what you're getting at which is another thing, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this about the show, but in... Practicing dimensionalizing all of these characters. We're going to see Phyllis Schlafly as a whole woman and a whole human being who is questionable in her motives and her ideology and her beliefs to say the least. But she is a whole human being and it's not – I mean, yeah, I've, I've felt empathy for her more than once at this oh. point. And it wouldn't be interesting if it was just a one-sided villain story in the same way that, you know, we're seeing parts of of Gloria Steinem that are less than stellar. These are all full-fledged human beings who, you know, are not perfect or not roundly sadistic. And, yeah, they're human beings just as every human being I hate in politics today is also – believe it or not, a human being.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And who wants to watch a show for nine episodes about just a villain? Like, that is not interesting. You ha- It has to be a multifaceted character to hold interest.
2: Exactly. And that's why you have to have a brilliant actor to play someone like Phil Schlafly, because if the actor wasn't like a- so inherently likable themselves, then, you know, you'd pretty much, it would be a non-starter. But Kate Blanchett is just so charismatic on screen of, That it's like, even if she is just being the biggest asshole, (laughs) still just want to watch her.
0: Let me ask you this. When Lenin started the revolution in 1917, do you think he told the people, fight with us and we'll give you food shortages, censorship, and terror? Oh, no. He promised them peace, land, and bread. Now, it starts with a simple piece of legislation like the ERA. And then the left feels emboldened to eliminate alimony, child support, and the widow's social security. And before you know it, we are living in a feminist totalitarian nightmare. Thank you for having me on your show.
1: <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And so I want to ask you some questions about Kate that I usually ask my guests on the show, if you don't mind.
2: Of course.
1: What is your favorite performance by Kate Blanchett?
2: Blue Jasmine is definitely my favorite. It's just, I only have seen it twice because it's too, it's too painful, honestly, mm-hmm. to watch. But I just think what she, the, you know, gradual sort of descent that she is able to... depict in that that movie and on that, you know, to use a buzzword journey Mm -hmm. is I think one of the performances that everyone should should see. Everyone.
1: Yeah, I love that performance. I think it's my favorite too. And have you seen her do Blanche Dubois at BAM?
2: No. I wish. (laughs) Is it available for streaming or something?
1: Uh, No, it's not, but I think she's so great at Jasmine because she played Blanche first. Like a few years, I think it was four or five years before Jasmine she played Blanche, which is kind of a Jasmine character. Or Ugh, Jasmine no. is a Blanche character.
2: I know. It's like one of the ones where it's like I kick myself every minute of my life for missing it. I know she's so, I mean, obviously she's incredible on screen, but also to see her on stage, I did see her in the present and it's just like, oh... That's why you're a movie star. Not that she's any, you know, has any airs about her or anything like that. It's just like, oh, no, you are a star and you exude magic from your pores that I can never understand.
1: Yeah, she's amazing. Who is your favorite Kate scene partner?
2: Because I just recently rewatched it since it is on Netflix. Love Miss Kate opposite Mr. Matt Damon in... Talented Miss Ripley. Oh my God, yes. So good, so good. And she, that's just also proof that like, she done been good for decades now.
1: Yeah, she's so amazing in the Talented Miss Ripley in a very small part, but you just like, you miss her when she's not on screen and she and Damon, to your point, have such great chemistry together.
2: Well, I don't even think that it's like, I mean, yes, it's just like amount of screen time, I guess, you know, smaller comparatively but like no yeah I think of her as so seminal in that movie and oh my god yeah her scenes in that Damon okay well, I can exhale now I got it
1: <laughs> you did and at Sundays with Kate we did an episode on the talented Mr. Ripley with Jose Solis who's oh, my goodness. friend and also I- Casey's friend ah,
2: love Jose we always oh, well back when we were allowed out of the house we always used to talk about our our manicures we always used to get manicures <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's fine Love him. I have to listen to that.
1: Is there someone you would like to see her work with? Maybe on stage since you see a lot of um,
2: theater. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, who is my favorite (laughs) female stage actress? I mean, I just, everyone knows that I love Miss Katrina Lank. And I feel like the two of them, if their cheekbones could both fit on the same stage, (laughs) that would probably be... It and they could play like they could play like, you know, European sisters at the turn of the century or something. Yes,
1: I love that. That's a great, great answer. And wasn't
2: <laughs> I don't know. I just answer Katrina Lang like, with every question I'm asked usually.
1: Wasn't she, as the French say, sublime doing Joanna with her guitar and that song, I, Time I, Sing Along?
2: Up. I mean, okay, fine if you insist. <laughs> uh yes, no, she was. I feel you
0: Joanna I feel you I was half convinced I'd waken Satisfied enough to dream believe i was mistaken joanna i steal you joanna
2: great show great show great actors all i'm so excited to to keep watching it
1: me too Thank you so much, Casey, for coming on Sundays with Kate. And before Thank we go...
2: Thank you for having me and for letting me somehow work Katrina Link into a podcast about Kate Blanchett.
1: <laughs> we love it. I love both Kate and Katrina. So that was well done. Uh, before we go, please tell our listeners where they can find you and your work.
2: Yes. As I've mentioned a couple times now, I'm extremely, very, very much too active on Twitter. Um, you can find me at at Casey underscore mink. Um, and you can find all of my writing at uh, backstage.com.
1: Thank you so much, Casey. And you can find me on Twitter at me underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening.